This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos for part two of my discussion with Dr. Corey Clark. We pick up in this conversation, which we're talking about academic journals, um, endorsing political candidates, um, science being directed at desired outcomes and suppressed if it doesn't meet the agenda of the institution or of the society behind it. We talk about uh, how men and women are different in their priorities. Having more women in an institution, uh, she says, um, can impact how an organization, the, the goals of the organization, and how it operates. We also talk about censorship of, of academic studies, uh, and especially in, in things that suggest that people vary at the individual level and at the group level. Uh, we get into hiring biases that, uh, that are in favor of groups that, uh, that, are, that are unexpected. Uh, she, she talks about uh, how she believes and, and, and the studies suggest that women are being favored in hiring uh, for jobs, especially jobs that are traditionally male dominated um, and how this is going to change the game dramatically a few years down the down the road. Uh, so she, it's a very provocative conversation uh, that, that, we, that, we, that we have. So welcome back and we'll join in the middle of this conversation. Episode 21, Untamed Ethos. So one thing that I've been kind of interested in recently, I have a paper under review looking at the politicization of institutions. Um, and academic disciplines and science. Um, and we saw something really interesting. We looked across, I think, like 40 different institutions and organizations and groups of professionals. So like the World Health Organization, um, uh, scientists in general, uh, I'm, now I'm like blanking on, even postal workers, I think we had in there. Um, but, and, and I think we also had some corporations like Facebook, for example. Um, and what we see across all of these organizations and institutions is that when people perceive these institutions as allowing political values to influence their work, the reaction is almost universally negative. So they trust them less. They're less willing to defer to their expertise. They're less willing to support them, to financially support them. But what was interesting is that we saw this across the entire political spectrum of the public. So even left-leaning people don't like left-leaning institutions allowing left-leaning political values to influence their work. They prefer, it seems, institutional neutrality. They want organizations to just do the thing that they say they're doing. So we had, we had like the Supreme Court, for example. Um, and so it seems that there's this uh, contradiction where organizations are often, you know, appealing to their their in-group by getting involved in politics and allowing political values to influence their work. And potentially this is actually undermining their reputation even among their political in-group. And so now I'm trying to do some follow-up work on this and at least 
and we only have done one new study on this so far, but I think what we're potentially seeing is that nobody sees their own behavior as political. So, so for example, um, the family of Nature Springer journals, Nature is like the most prestigious science journal in the whole entire world. And they have a bunch of journals under their umbrella. And they endorsed uh, Joe Biden for president. Um, and there was another study conducted by another scholar that found that when Nature endorsed Joe Biden for president, uh, it had almost no impact on people's attitudes toward Trump or Biden, but it did cause people to trust the journal Nature less, and it caused people to trust scientists on whole less. So it had this broad effect that undermined trust in the institution of science because the journal Nature decided to endorse Joe Biden. Now, when I see a journal doing that, I think they're getting political, like they're allowing their politics to influence their work. That's not what science is supposed to be doing. Science is supposed to be evaluating quality research and getting it out into the world. Um, but I would strongly suspect that the editors at Nature who decided to write that editorial endorsing Joe Biden, um, they probably didn't think it was political. They thought, well, Joe Biden is pro-science and Trump is anti-science. And so for the sake of science, we endorse Joe Biden, not for a political reason, not because we support his policies, only because this is a pro-science thing to do. Um, and so I think now I have to think more carefully about, you know, what do people think they're doing when they make moves that look like political to the world, but to them? they don't think they don't see them that way and who's right like are the nature editors right and this wasn't political um or is the public perception of no you're, you're using your institutional you're abusing your institutional power to influence political outcomes um in a way that's not appropriate given your stated mission which is publish high quality science um so i don't, I don't know where that line will go but I'm, I'm interested in that now um well the what what the goal of science is is suddenly up for debate. I mean, this is something that that you've talked about before, and I think we alluded to it at least briefly before. Is what men tend to think the goal of science is, or willing to accept from science is, you know, um, very free speech and pursuit of absolute truth, no matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter the cost of the truth because it could, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't know how people are going to respond to the truth. And the other attitude is, um, you know, this could be negative. And so we need to be outcome focused and we need to be shooting science at a target. It, this is what science should accomplish. Science should make X better for why people and if it doesn't then it should be suppressed because it's a risk of not having the outcomes we science should be directed at an outcome and if we conceive of a way that this science could be seen as doing something or promoting something that is not on our agenda then then that should be suppressed or silenced even redacted and that's kind of a scary thing about what we're seeing in science. Um, you know, you in your some of your previous talks, you've attributed that to the to the greater role of or the higher concentration of views that tend to be more feminine or from or from female scholars of, you know, really, I think you, you know, the, the moral goals, if you will. And so 
you're looking at a moral goal for science. And so if this is along your morality, then it's along your agenda. And it's almost like truth has to bow to, to whether this fits an agenda or not. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure how I'm formulating the question, but when you, when you're getting into this, why are people doing it? How do they perceive it? How does this blend into what you've talked about before with the concentration of academia and, and how it's influencing these journals and what is the goal of science? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one thing I should say is that it is true that men are more supportive of pursuit of truth, even if it could interfere with certain moral goals. The differences are not huge between men and women, but they are very consistent. I've seen them across a lot of different surveys and a lot of different kinds of ways of formulating the question, including in my own research, um, where women, for example, they think one moral goal of science should be equity. Uh, And this is interesting because equity isn't even necessarily a moral goal everyone shares. Like, unlike, for example, let's say, um, you know, increasing the standard of living for people across the globe. Probably almost everyone is like, yes, we should be increasing the standard of living, more access to resources and medicine, safe living conditions, blah, 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 things like that. Equity is not a goal that everyone has. And some people think it's it's actually quite impossible um, to accomplish. But women are more likely to think that science should be pursuing that moral goal. And if pursuit of truth interferes with that, then maybe that truth isn't worth wanting. Um, Whereas men would be more likely to say, no, we're pursuing truth. And the consequences of that be damned, (laughs) you know, Um, uh, now I think it's a little bit more complicated because at least when I talk about the pursuit of truth, I I tend to think about it in terms of the value of truth and the value of truth in my mind is that true information actually allows us to solve problems more efficiently. So if we don't know what is true about the world, we can't pinpoint the problem and we can't find the solution. Um, so that's a very like moralized way of framing the problem of pursuit of truth. Um, Intention, because I'm a woman. Basically, <laughs> saying intentions are what matters um, more than mm. tension. Tensions are number one. Is we're going to judge this by its intentions rather than its actual outcomes, and the mm-hmm. versus the assumption that hey, we need to start with truth in order to get to a potential correct calculation of what we should do. If we, we need to understand the real problem and the real truth, if we're going to, we're going to correct anything, we need to, we need to know what we're actually starting from is, is accurate versus no, mm-hmm. the fact that that's accurate might actually prevent us. It's the might. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And I think you can see this with a lot of the controversial conclusions in society or in, in science and especially social science, they almost all revolve around the existence of group differences so that different ethnic groups or that men or women, for example, might be different in a way that is natural or it's caused by biology or evolution or genes. Those are the most controversial conclusions that you can report. And potentially the reason those are the most controversial conclusions you can report is because now that women um, are have more control in science, granted, I should say that those have been controversial for a long time. So that can't be entirely attributed to the rise of women. But it seems they're becoming potentially more controversial. 
And it could be because women more than men value egalitarianism, whereas men, as I said before, are more comfortable with meritocracy and, and they're more comfortable with hierarchy. So men have evolved in organized groups where they have a leader who's leading the men and like, a, you know, like an award type, a military type context, but less organized throughout human history, just intergroup conflict where men organize the groups, they had leaders um, and they organized themselves hierarchically and competed against other men to take other men's land and resources. Um, whereas women didn't participate as much in that and they were more concerned with protecting themselves and the lives of their offspring. Um, and so they were cooperating in much smaller groups of highly loyal people. And so they kind of wanted everyone to be on an even level. And so women have a preference over men for um, egalitarianism. There's this great study, I forget who it's by, um, but it was with like five or six year old kids. And they had um, the kids evaluate two drawings. Did I mention this already? I feel like I'm having, maybe I mentioned to you in our, in our last chat. Um, <laughs> but they had these two um, pictures of houses where the kids had the color in the houses. And one of them is very neat and colored inside the lines. And the other one's just kind of chaos, like scribbles all over. And they gave these little boys and girls stickers to allocate to these two um, colorings. And the boys were more likely to award more stickers to the competent <laughs> um, drawing and women uh, were more likely to distribute the stickers evenly to the two colorings, even though one was, you know, by coloring standards, <laughs> clearly better. Um, and so men, they're more comfortable with hierarchy, they're more comfortable with meritocracy, they're more comfortable with the idea that some people are going to be better off than other people, whereas women really are more interested in leveling people and making sure everyone has the same. Um, and so I think when it comes to science, what you see is findings that seem to support the narrative that variation is natural and that some people are going to be better at things than other people. Um, that makes people who have these egalitarian or these equity preferences more uncomfortable because they see that as sort of a threat to the goal of, well, one day we can live in a society where everyone has the same. Um, and so I think that's potentially some of what you see happening with you know, this increase in censorship and self-censorship, particularly regarding those kinds of findings, findings that say groups are different from each other, or even people are different from each other. You know, some people are highly critical of the entire concept of IQ or general intelligence because people vary on that. And some people don't want people to vary. They want everyone to be as talented as everyone else. Um, and so those kinds of findings become controversial. They have a harder time getting published. If people do publish them, they get in trouble. Um, and I think all of that, you know, the rise in cancel culture similarly could potentially be attributed to the rise of women in institutions. So <laughs> I have a lot of potentially controversial ideas I'm entertaining right now. But like one is that, you know, men benefited more from participating in these really massive coalitions like the bigger your group the more likely you're gonna beat another group and so men can't afford to be burning alliances with guys on their team and so if a guy screws up they might punish him but still let him be part of the club you know still as so long as he's a beneficial group member keep him on the team whereas women 
they were more pruning people, getting rid of them, because what they wanted was a small group of highly loyal and trustworthy people, because they didn't want anyone. She doesn't want anyone in her orbit who poses a violent threat to her or her offspring. So she'd rather have five super loyal, trustworthy buddies than a hundred where 10 of them, who knows, you know, they're, they're wild cards, whereas men might want the wild cards. Um, and so I think what we see now with cancel culture and the ostracizing of people who make one mistake, they said the wrong thing, they said the wrong thing the wrong way. And now we're willing to say, you're booted from society permanently. You're done. You're losing your job. You're never getting another job again. You're a pariah. No one's going to interact with you. Like that to me is more consistent with female psychology where we say, you know what, you've proven to me you're a risky person. I don't want you in the club. Whereas men would be more likely to say, oh, let's just call the person a mean name or whatever, slap them on the wrist, give them the penalty they deserve, and then they get to come back into the club. Um, so I think a lot of these trends we're seeing with, you know, the rise of the victimhood culture, with the def- the, the decline of meritocracy, um, the, the cancel culture, the, you know, free speech being threatened, all of this is kind of consistent with female psychology. And so I think it's not much of a coincidence that this is all happening right as women are gaining power across all of these different institutions. That's my, that's my big controversial theory. (laughs) So, I mean, I'll take the other side on this is by saying that, are you not just saying that men, male psychology is the right psychology and that female psychology is the wrong psychology? So I think it's complicated. One, one initial complication is that a lot of the institutions that women are now increasingly in control of were designed by men. Um, So they were kind of designed to conform to male psychology. Like a lot of organizations are hierarchical. We have presidents and directors and managers and blah, blah, blah. So like the way organizations are structured are hierarchical. If you look at academia, it's meritocratic. It's like, let's give A's to the really smart kids and fail the ones that aren't doing that well. Um, So a lot of these organizations and institutions were designed by men. And so it's not surprising that a lot of them would have kind of male priorities baked into them. And so when women come in, it makes sense that that would disrupt um, these organizations and institutions a little bit. Now, I don't want to say that that means that inevitably males should dominate everything. One, as I said, and as we've discussed, is these are average differences. So it's there are going to be tons of men who have, you know, more egalitarian values and tons of women who prefer meritocracy, that that kind of thing. Um, But on top of it, it probably we're going to get some costs and some benefits to these changing priorities in these institutions. And I do absolutely do not think the solution is to kick women out. Not only would that be unethical, but like, it's just not, that's just not going to happen. And women, uh, of course, have a lot to offer to these institutions. So I think women are going to bring some benefits. They're going to bring some challenges. And then hopefully we kind of come up with a new sort of equilibrium where we figure out as these institutions change, what's working, what's getting better and what's getting worse. And then can we figure out a way to preserve or change the institution in a way that actually works to the benefits of everyone? Um, 
I don't know what that looks like, but um, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a process. And I think we're in the middle of that process right now. Yeah, you know, I, I think this the interesting idea that, you know, things could even possibly be equitable between all these folks. I can't I couldn't even make things equitable among white men. Um, I could not make things equitable among white women or black women or anything else. I couldn't make things equitable, even within that group. I couldn't make things equitable between, you know, um, Hispanic men who are 5'10 and born in the state of Texas, you know. I mean, you can't make things equitable among fraternal twins. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, I have three siblings and, you know, my oldest sister is one of my confidants. She's one of the wisest people that I know. She's got gifts that I don't have and she's better than me. I'm better than her. It depends on what you want to, what you want to greatest on, right? It's the same thing, my other sister and my brother. And, you know, even within the same sharing uh, so many of the same genetics, we vary on different characteristics and so, you know, just the thinking of that we can get all these things equitable between between people is, you know, also I apply um, more effort to certain things in my life than my siblings do. And they apply more effort and more of their priority to other things than I do and vice versa. And so why would I expect to have the equal outcome in an area that my brother is his number one priority. And for me, it's my number two priority or three priority. And it may still be a high priority for me, but I'm putting more time and effort into it over a longer period of time. And those things tend to, tend to, to go up about to, to uh, compound over time. And I think part of what the problem that we're seeing that, that, that I suspect is the force at which we're trying to make things change. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was, you know, I, I I see the benefits of 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 having um, female presence in my industry, for example, in wealth management and, and and hiring advisors that are female is something that it's good for business. And I'm a capitalist, and that is it is what it is. And and certain people provide you know, prefer what women bring to those you know, those consultative approaches and. Certain men do, and then certain women prefer men. It just is what it is. The the, the certain ways that people you know, bring to it. But I remember um, in a, when I was early in my career, I think I was probably twenty nine, and I had an open position for an advisor. This is when I was with a big firm, which I will, which will remain nameless. Um, and I had an open position for an advisor on my team, and I was interviewed. I had to tell HR who I was interviewing, and all the people I was interviewing were, were men. And HR said to me, "You're not interviewing any women." I said, "I've had zero applicants that are women well you can't inter- not have you can't fill this position without having interviewed any women I'm like okay give me some women i ha- happy to like I, I all my advisors currently are men um and i have one person in the office who's female who is the um head of customer service she selected that role i had talked to her many times about about maybe this path to advisor not interested why? Because, well, you got to sell and you got to raise business. And I just want to talk to people. I don't want to have the, those goals in front. That was her, her thing. And so anyway, the, the, they told me, well, you got you to gotta find some females. Well, how do I do that? Well, get on LinkedIn and try to find some females. So I get on LinkedIn and it's, I come back to, to HR. And I was like, hey, there's, I was uh, in, a, in, in Nashville at the time. And, you know, I've, I've written these advisors that are female. None of them have written me back. 
And, you know, well, maybe go down to find somebody who's a banker or something like that. and You can train them up. All right, I can do this. Well, first of all, I felt a little creepy because I was 29 and I'm messaging like 25 year old girls on on, on, on LinkedIn, basically like, hey, let's talk about your, you know, your your goals for your career. You know, they, they just think I'm hitting on them, you know. Um, but uh, so I go back to HR and I'm like, you know, the only people I can really find are these bankers. But, um, you know, they're, they're not licensed. They don't have the experience. They're not really what we're looking for for an advisor position. They said, well, you can hire them and train them up. I said, okay, so are you telling me that instead of hiring for a advisor, I can hire for a junior advisor who has lower sales targets, lower, lower expectations? No, you could still hire them for this position. I'm like, yeah, but if, if they have this position, then they are responsible for X percentage of my goal. So if I hire someone who's not even licensed and has zero experience in the industry, and but they're going to contribute to my bottom line expectation is, you know, if, if I've got five advisors of the same level, every advisor should be responsible for 20 percent of the goal. And I've got somebody coming in that I'm saying it's going to be a year for the next year. She's going to give me a goose egg. So the best I can do is a goose egg from her. And then maybe next year she'll start and build her up. You're telling me I have to suffer in order to hire someone who's not qualified because I need to hire a female. And in, in that situation, it was that was that was shocking. Not to mention how that potentially affects her exactly. like, confidence and her ability to do the job when she hasn't had the proper exactly yeah. exactly because yeah. ultimately she's going to figure it out that she's the she's the weak link on this team. And, you know, you see these in hiring up. I, mean, I saw a thing from Morgan Stanley this year that said, you know, hey, for the first time ever, we've hired 50% women, which is great, wonderful, assuming that the, the quality is the same. And I don't know that it is because I know who's pursuing those jobs and who isn't, and it's skewed male. And just based on the numbers, if I've got 100 males applying and 100, and, and if I've got 100 males applying and 25 females applying, for 50 jobs, numbers is I'm probably going to have more male qualified folks than female in that job. And it's it'd be the same thing if we went to in the opposite flip, if we were to take a job that had 100 female applicants and 20 male applicants and try to make it 50-50, guess what? The, the female applicants are probably going to be better prepared just because there's more of them. And if they have all, if they're the same distribution of, of, of good versus average versus terrible applicants, you're putting women in positions by forcing them in there into some situations where they may not be prepared for, and then they get eaten alive. The best are going to be fine. The best are going to be fine. And the best are equal and maybe even be better, but the ones that are being pulled up in order to have equity, they're actually being put at a disadvantage. Yeah, there's there's a there's a failure to consider how these things take time to balance out. So one thing we see in academia is um, if you look among tenured professors, there are more men than women. And so people point to that to say, look, we still have this terrible sexism problem. You know, if you look at the highest status professors, professors, uh, you know, uh, Sometimes if you're a professor, you can even get like distinctions above that. Well, if you look at these distinguished professors, there's 70 percent men like we clearly have an issue. Well, if you look at assistant professors, there are 60 percent women. What does that mean? That means in 50 years, 
that the distinguished professors are going to be more women than men, most likely, if, if people don't drop out of the workforce. Um, and so people look at these statistics among the highest status people who've been around the longest, who were hired in at a time when women were either discouraged or simply not even allowed to go down certain career uh, trajectories. Um, and then they look at those and they see gender differences and then assume that our hiring practices are biased when our hiring practices may well be biased in favor of women. It's just, it's going to take 50 years <laughs> to see those changes. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I even see this like with um, faculty jobs in psychology. Psychology is overwhelmingly women, yet our job applications still say we especially encourage applications from women. <laughs> it's like... If, it, if you look at distinguished professors in psychology, there might be more men than women. But at every other level, there are more women than men. Um, and, you know, if we keep discriminating against men at the level we're discriminating against men, then in 50 years, we're going to have 95% women. And is that the target? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it is. So, yeah, there's kind of a, just a failure to, to, to appreciate that cultural change takes time and it takes time to get people the qualifications they need to get to those high status positions. And the other consequences it has for society and culture, just civilization in general. And that comes down to relationships again is, um, you know, the, we hear this, but from some data I've seen as far as income, especially in twenties and even among millennial women, on average, women are earning more than men are at these different levels. And yeah, when you look at 50 year olds and 60 year olds and stuff, the, the, the men tend to be the highest earners, but then you kind of start seeing these things level out. And a lot of the, the stuff I've, I've seen some data from uh, attorneys and you see that, um, you know, you have all these ultra um, uh, conscientious and hardworking and they kind of get to the partner level. Cause that's kind of it. Just like in, in, in the, in academia, it's get tenure, you know, for, for, for attorney, it's get, make partner. And then it's okay. I've done it. Now let me look around where I'm at. Am I 30? Am I 34? Am I 35? And now what, what else do I want in life? Let me look around. And if that is, you know, if you're a woman and you're waking up and you're 34 and it's, I haven't thought about children yet. And now I kind of want to have children. Maybe you've been married for 10 years, but now it's time for children. Now you you understand there's a window of time that you're thinking about this as being, you know, I need to do this in the next 10 years. I, I can't wait another 10, you know? Um, and um, and so you, you you have this realization is I need to take away from something else in order to do this. So you'll tend to see more of, 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 the, of them dropping out of the workforce. You don't see um, men attain partner and then three years later drop out of the, out of the workforce. You see that with um, you don't see them make partner and then decline. You see that men uh, in the data to continue to do more work, more work, more work. And you'll see the women type tend to level off because they tend to go into other priorities. And it's these hyper motivated men. They're making a lot of trade-offs that I would argue that the women are in a better state of mind in a healthier state of mind of, of attaining um, a, a life that they will be proud of later in life. I think the women are doing a better job of thinking, Hey, um, I have some other things that are important to me that I'm willing to take, make a little bit less money and spend more time with my children. I would argue they're, they are long-term making the better decision 
but yet you see these hyper men that are dominating the, 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 the income and the rankings and things like that. And it's because they're not making trade-offs because they're continuing to focus on these things and making this their, their entire identity. And therefore we have to judge women who are making, in my opinion, better decisions for their long-term as being inferior to the men, even though my opinion is making better decisions that they're going to feel better about mm-hmm. when they're 70 years old. But yet on paper, yeah. I guess it's like the problem is like we can quantify money. We can't like quantify and compare, you know, who has a more fulfilling family life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the guy who's working 100 hours a week, that's all he's doing. Yes. Um, which is not what most people want to do. Most people have a lot of things they care about. Yeah. And, and why would a man make those decisions? And why are women less likely to make those decisions? You know, those are those are the trade-offs that we're not calculating in. We're only looking at outcomes. We're not looking at incomes, at, 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 at yeah. inputs, only outputs, not inputs. And to have a discussion mm-hmm. about outputs without having a discussion about inputs is foolishness. But that's what mm-hmm. equity discussions get you, is a discussion of outputs without the discussion of inputs. And you can say, well, right. well inputs aren't always, like, we can focus on the fact that inputs that you can't control are unequal, but we forget about that the inputs you can control are also equal, are, are also unequal and are and are contributing to a lot of the outputs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some people might say that we shouldn't care about inputs, but but then you're not thinking about like, well, how are we properly incentivizing people to do good work? You know, yeah. if we're not rewarding it. So yeah, um, yeah complicated problem human human variation is, is a <laughs> problem with uh, <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want to talk about that why why is human variation you know b- b- between individuals and w- within groups and between groups why is that so um so controversial um i think it's probably a couple things like one is one is you know you can only have let's say five percent of people at the top five percent um, 1% of the people in the top 1%, which means that 95% of the people or 99% of the people would be motivated to sort of like deny the existence of those differences because they don't want to be uh, average um, on anything that's considered important. And then, yeah, I think we just, both men and women, I think, care to a degree about equality and, you know, everyone being able to live a good life, especially if you're willing to work hard. And it's kind of painful to think about the possibility that some people, even if they work hard, they're not going to achieve as much as other people. Um, And so I think it it kind of comes down a little bit to the naturalistic fallacy, too. Like, I think people think if you say that there are differences between groups or, or between people, individuals, you're saying that it's good and it's justified that that's the way it is. Um, but that's not what it means. Like saying that people do differ doesn't mean that it's good that they differ. It doesn't mean that we should like create, like orient society toward, you know, making those differences even bigger. It's just acknowledging that that variation exists in the first place. But I think people just, people have a hard time um, kind of separating like the is and the ought idea. And if you say something is, they think you're saying it, it ought to be. Um, and maybe that just comes down to 
making that more an explicit part of like teaching science that just because something is the case, even if it's natural, even if it's caused by evolution or genes or whatever, any of the, the, the sort of like naturalistic explanations you can provide for things, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the desired state of reality or that nothing can be done about it. Um, it's really just pointing out empirical reality and then we can adjust our values and our goals according to whatever seems, you know, the best for people at the time. Um, so I suspect, I suspect that will probably always be controversial unless we're able to do some really crazy stuff like with like gene editing <laughs> that literally makes everyone exactly the same as everyone else. Is that a desirable goal? I don't think so, but maybe some people would say that that's something to consider. I mean, one thing could be we might be able to make everybody better at everything, um, but I don't even know what that would look like either. And also different people want to be good at different things. Like, so yeah. some people want to be really good athletes. Some people want to be really smart. Some people want to be supermodels. Um, yeah. Some people want to be good moms. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I mean, that's part of the problem is we, we, we tend to decide um, we want to decide as a people, instead of letting people decide as in, individuals, which it goes back to the whole point of feminism in the beginning is, let women have choices, let them choose what they want to be and be okay with different women making different decisions and having different priorities and um, different personalities, different goals and different, th th those sorts of things. Yeah. I think that what's interesting to me is when you think about this and you know, a lot of the things that you've said sound um, very conservative to a lot of people um, and it's interesting when I think about academia, that academia has typically been more liberal. And I use the word liberal in a classical sense, not in a modern sense. A lot of things that are labeled liberal nowadays are really far leftist. And, and when you get far left, you stop being liberal. Um, you know, our founding fathers were notoriously liberal. Uh, things like the idea of free speech. Free speech is the most fundamental extremely radically liberal idea at the time is you can say what you want to say about government or about people that have power or about rich people. You can say anything. And, you know, the bastion, uh, the, 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 one of the preservers of free speech in our society has been academia. Um, and that's one of the things that has kept academia viewed as a more liberal education is you can talk about things that, traditional society is not allowed when you when you're thinking about the traditionally we've we've been we've been very conservative as far as from the power base for many years and free speech was something that almost that was held up by the left um because the right had you can't say these things you can't put these things on television it was the right that was talking about what you can't say and what you can't talk about and what's out of bounds and now it's interesting because, you know, the the free speech and the is, is almost become something that's a, that's a right wing issue and being able to speak freely without being canceled, and without having your livelihood taken away from you is really strange historically for free speech to be a conservative issue. And, you know, caring about inclusiveness and, you know, moral goals and things like that the right and the left have different ways of, of 
quantifying those things and defining those things, but the, the, the central issue is who's carrying the banner of, of free speech and what is the goal of, of, I guess, of what we're, we're doing here. And, you know, it's interesting to me to, 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 to see you working on these things. And do you feel like you're now seen as a right winger when you talk about truth and free speech and talking about these things? Maybe you identify as a conservative or right winger, Republican or any of those any of those terms. But how do you feel about that sort of labeling or of, of, of the perspective that you're coming from. Because when I hear free speech, I still think I'm a classical liberal that believes in free speech. I live a very conservative life, so I have a lot of conservative beliefs and values. But when it comes to free speech, that makes me liberal and that I'm a, I'm a free speech person. How, how do you how do you conceptualize this? How do you feel about the labeling and how for, for you? So so I agree that free speech would kind of be associated with like a kind of classical liberal idea. I mean, the word like free is, is right in there. Um, but I think it's very strategically used by both the left and the right. Um, and both the left and the right both support it and oppose it as it's convenient um, in academia. So academia is these days it is left leaning. That is not just classical liberal or even not classical liberal it is like progressive um and even in academia like five years ago people were saying that academic freedom and free speech are like dog whistles for sexism and racism and that we're pretending we're talking about these principles but really we just want bigots to be able to say whatever they want and publish all kinds of terrible things but then when you've had just in the past couple of years um some legislation in more right-leaning states that potentially would limit what's going to be taught in K through 12 regarding like sexuality specifically. Then you started to see academics and left-leaning academics starting to care about academic freedom again. So it's like the person who cares about academic freedom is the person who feels like they're currently being, um, uh, their, their ideas are the ones being excluded. Same with free speech. Nobody really cares about free speech when it comes to people saying things that they disagree with. But when it's the things that I want to say can't be said, now I care. So I think like free speech and academic freedom, like those those ideas are going to be more or less appealing to people, depending on whether they personally feel like their own um, their own rights are being violated. So the the free speech word, I agree, is kind of maybe it's been associated with classical liberalism, sometimes it seems more right-leaning, sometimes more left-leaning. And I think that's just potentially something that's going to like change over time forever, <laughs> depending on what's currently controversial. Um, but, but I care, I care, I, I care more about academic freedom than I do free speech because I find some speech to be pretty valueless. Like just calling people nasty names to me has almost no value whatsoever, but to me being able to, um, publish data and talk about ideas and ask questions and ponder like multiple hypotheses in a way that's trying to get us toward truth to me i see that as really important and so when it comes to academic freedom i i'm very like supportive of that and i i think <laughs> i think that i support that for everyone no matter what it is that they're trying to study um but maybe something could push me over the edge. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and I think that this comes down to, you know, trying to legislate, um, assume intentions. And also, yeah. you know, I, I would differentiate um, 
quite with um, enthusiastically differentiate between K through 12 education and and academia. Um, this is adults versus children, the end. And, you know, going to college is a choice and which college you go to is a choice and which um, um, disciplines you pursue is a choice that an adult, presumably, I know there's rare cases where people are starting school, you know, 16 to 17, whatever, but presumably an adult is is making these decisions. Um, and whereas K through 12 is something that is mandated by the government that you have to have a certain amount of education and unless you're homeschool, and by the way, a lot of homeschooling is legislated as well, not, you know, not as much, but is you're being forced to learn these things and what is what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught and you know this is this is something that um you know i some conservatives can disagree with me that although i'm a christian and i believe in teaching my children at home certain of my beliefs i don't necessarily want those things taught in school um is it do i believe you know, this whole idea of prayer in school that's very that's very controversial. Is do I believe you can't take prayer out of school? You can't even know if I'm praying. I can be praying anytime I want to pray, you know. But there's a very difference between you know, between that and and having someone lead your children in prayer because then it's which prayers are allowed, which religions are allowed, and things like that. So, you know, there's a there's a difference in being able to freely speak and being in restricting speech. You know, I don't uh, which I, which I always liked and. You know, I grew up in Alabama and it was basically uh, as a player, I could lead a prayer in the 50 yard line after a football game, but we shouldn't have administrators doing that because then that's, you know, the, what I was doing was voluntary and it was a student leading it. That's free speech. Right. But I think when you take a position of authority and you're telling me that, you know, hey, everybody gather around and pray, that's that's different. Right. And I think that's where I kind of can stop with certain conservatives is. You know, now you're mandating this to minors. As far as as we as we kind of get to the end of this conversation here, I want to hear about you. For what is your goal and what you're doing? You know, we talk about the goal of science, the goal of academia. What is the goal of Dr. Corey Clark? I mean, we've talked about the fact <laughs> that you're doing controversial things, like you say, what happens if if I get canceled and things like that. Like, what is your goal and what has made you? so impressively bold in, um, in what you're studying and being willing to say, hey, let the chips fall where they fall. I'm going to do what I believe in. Where does this come from? Um, poor judgment. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. I think I care about pursuit of truth. I think I'm not easily offended. Um, and, and I, I think adults can handle a lot of ideas, even ideas that are false and even ideas that are potentially offensive. I don't think anything follows from that. I think even a really horrible or uncomfortable truth necessitates no action. And so that to me doesn't seem particularly threatening. I also think of science as a process that most potentially most of what's going to get published in science is going to be wrong, but getting it wrong is a step on the way to getting it right. Um, and if you look throughout the history of science, uh, that is what you see. You see a lot of people getting things wrong. And a lot of the time, um, you know, certain ideas that were considered 
horribly dangerous, um, like um, uh, like a heliocentrism, for example, or, or evolution that people were really worried were going to totally like ruin civil society or, or whatever it was going to be. It would cause everyone to be terrible people. Um, those those fears were not borne out. Usually, science has it has a very good uh, track record of improving human lives and creating pros, uh, progress and um, making the world a better place. So um, maybe I'm like more a big picture kind of person, and and so I care a lot about science. I care a lot about pursuit of truth, and I care a lot about people's ability to publish all kinds of ideas, even ones that are pretty speculative very well might be wrong um and I don't see that as a problem like maybe I'm a little bit like less authoritarian than some people potentially because I I think I would be more inclusive like let's publish everything <laughs> maybe not everything like you know you want to you want to sort things so people know what to attend to you know what's higher quality than other information but um yeah I think that's kind of how I view I view science as a an ongoing process that's going to make a lot of missteps, but in the long run is it tends to make lives better. And so I want to help facilitate that process. And so when I see other people um, trying to interfere with the publishing of potentially true science, not even necessarily true, just potentially true, um, then I, I want to um, help <laughs> facilitate uh, people's ability to um publish and promote and talk about their science and I know a lot of people are really scared and people tell me they're scared and I want to help embolden people to speak up for what they think is true because uh, I think that's the only way we're going to really understand where you know scientific opinion lies on controversial problems um, so what I'm trying to do now is I'm just trying to help um, help science do science <laughs> in the most sciencey way uh, I guess that's what I care about for now that's my that's my short-term goal. What am I going to do five, ten years from now? We'll see what happens. Well, you know, this kind of gets into your role and as the executive director of the um, adversarial collaboration project that mm -hmm. UPenn, um, you know, this is basically, as I would understand it, adversarial collaboration. You're actively trying to work with people who uh, are different than you. Wow, you're not just going to jump together and which tends to happen in academia you tend to, to and, and not just academia but in, in, in life as we tend to co uh, collaborate with and be drawn to those are they're similar to us uh, but this is not just the surface level differences that are stressed by hiring practices but this is um i would assume more i guess tell, tell me about this what, what what the goal of adversarial collaboration is and, and what was the genesis of this so it's essentially trying to interfere with the natural thing, which is to only work with and talk to people who agree with us and want all the same things to be true. Because um, what you have in science, what you've always had and you still have, is a lot of contradictory information that's being published by different scientists who over time come to hate one another and become like academic enemies. Uh, one person publishes this big paper saying X is true. And then five, 10 years later, someone else comes along and says, no, it's not. And then they just publish paper after paper, after paper, after paper, contradicting each other and never 
come closer together, which is like, while you're both spending a lot of your time and energy pumping out this work, you're working really, really hard, yet we're not making any progress. We're just going in opposite directions, really. Um, so what this adversarial collaboration project, what we're trying to do is get scientists who've been disagreeing with each other and who do disagree with each other to work together um, and figure out, okay, what is it we're actually disagreeing on? Because a lot of the time they're mischaracterizing each other and saying their opponent saying something way crazier than they're really saying. What are we actually disagreeing on? Okay, how could, what are the best methods we could use that could actually move us closer together so that we're, we're agreeing on the complexity of this? Like, is it bigger? Is it smaller? Is it moderated by something? Is it true in this context, but not true in that context? And that's why you've been saying X and I've been saying Y, but it's actually X in this context, but Y in that one. Like, figure out what is going on. Um, so the, the term adversarial collaboration was coined by Danny Kahneman, not me. So uh, he's a Nobel laureate in economics, and he did one of the first that was called an adversarial collaboration, which was led by Barb Mellers back in, I think, 2001. But ever since he coined this term, and people have been talking about how great it would be if scientists who disagreed would work together, you know, for decades, nobody does it, almost nobody does it. Um, and so I'm trying to encourage people to do that by supporting them either you know give them funds for their research or help them out by moderating these debates and helping and there is interpersonal conflict sometimes as can be expected but i do think that i'm starting to see their potential for actually bringing people together which is sort of the whole point so um we'll see how successful i am but that's what i'm working on now yeah and and i i also see it as a means of stopping the ostracism you know like, just because we disagree doesn't mean you have to be my enemy and it doesn't mean that I have to kick you out of all of my social groups and, you know, not let you talk at my events. And um, it's, well, actually, this person is an asset to you because they're going to challenge you and they're going to make you a better scientist. Yeah. Um, and so it's turning people who potentially could become mortal enemies and kick each other out of their social groups. No, let's bring you guys together. And instead of being like enemies in war, you're sparring partners who are improving each other's games. And that's how we should be viewing adversaries in science, not as enemies, but as as allies, really. Yeah. Well, I, that's impressive, Dr. Clark, you know, the uh, your willingness to do hard work and take uh, go off the beaten path on a lot of things is something that I, I really respect a lot. And it works very well with the name of, uh, of of this podcast, Untamed Ethos. <laughs> I definitely give you the thumbs up on on Untamed, doing your own thing and pursuing your own path, and um, you know, being an, an intellectual um, free spirit, if you will. So, <laughs> I like that term. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to promote today? Anything uh, for, for folks to follow you or learn more about you? Um, you can look up the Adversarial Collaboration Project if you're interested. We still have some funds we're giving away for projects there. So if you have an enemy you want to work with, uh, you can ping me. I'm also, um, I guess, a founding member of the Society for Open Inquiry and Behavioral Science. So if you're a behavioral scientist and you're looking for a new intellectual home in a professional society that supports academic freedom, then uh, you can check us out. But yeah, that's it. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Corey Clark. And uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, this is fun.